Listening to the hour of the time. I'm William Cooper. And I'm Carolyn Nelson. And that last hour is going to be a hard one to follow, folks. Say, did you hear the one about Hillary? She wanted this dude killed, so she hired these three Israelis who dressed up like Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, and Michael Jackson, and the Secret Service just waved them right on in the gate into the White House. Never mind that the Secret Service don't guard the gate, it's the White House police. Of course, nobody escorted them into the White House. They didn't have any security passes. Nobody checked their credentials. No, just waved them right on in. And these three Israelis, all decked out in all this makeup and stuff, looking like Tammy Faye Baker, just walked right in and shot this dude named Foster, and he just dropped dead right there on the ground floor of the White House, and nobody heard anything. Nobody knew nothing. This happened early in the morning, and then not till 1 o'clock, they found this guy sitting at his desk dead. Yep. And Clinton, he just had a fit, you know. He just flew right off the handle and had the Secret Service order them to take this dude out, this dead body, ferried him out to this park, this strange park that nobody knows about, you see, and propped him up there until somebody found him. And he had a, he had a trigger print on his thumb that just wouldn't go away. <laughs> Folks, Hillary Rodham Clinton didn't get to the White House by being so absolutely stupid. You see, you're the sheeple, not her. You see, if she was the sheeple, she'd be sitting in your living room and you'd be in the White House. <laughs> Don't you guys understand that? Welcome to the last episode of Mystery Babylon. Nazi Germany, a state in which children have become a national obsession. Hitler has proclaimed it must be considered reprehensible to withhold healthy children from the nation. If the fertility of the healthiest bearers of the nationality is consciously and systematically promoted, the result will be a race which has eliminated the germs of our present physical and hence spiritual decay. In the doctrines of National Socialism, this spiritual decay has but one cause, the dilution of the Aryan race by the blood of inferior peoples. Only by breeding from the racially purest can the greatness of the Aryans be restored. In the vanguard of the Nazi racial mission is Hitler's Praetorian Guard, the SS. Before he can enter the SS elite, a candidate must have his German ancestry proved back to the year 1750. Before marriage, the prospective bride of an SS man is subject to rigorous racial investigation. From the offspring of Hitler's guard, many generations in the future is intended to come the racially purest of German stock. A superior breed of human, born to rule. of this terrifying vision are strange and contradictory. An unlikely union between the teachings of a modern scientific movement and the esoteric doctrines of the occult. 
By the late 1920s, the German scientific and medical world had wholeheartedly embraced a new movement, the science of eugenics. The founder of eugenics is an Englishman, Sir Francis Galton, the cousin of Charles Darwin. The aim of eugenics, Galton had written, is to breed out feeble constitutions and petty and ignoble instincts, and to breed in those which are vigorous, noble, and social. To the disciples of eugenics, the intelligent and the industrious, the mentally ill, the criminal and the alcoholic are so because they carry within them the traits of their parents. The theory is that inferior types, by breeding faster than those of more valuable stock, will produce a catastrophic decline in the quality of the human race. Only by the most drastic measures it is believed can disaster be averted. The solution favored by the eugenics movement is the legal control of human breeding. Laws must be passed for the compulsory sterilization of the feeble-minded, the alcoholic, the insane, and the pauper. At the same time, valuable members of society are to be encouraged to have the largest possible number of children. of scientific theory. In the United States of America, it has long since been put into practice. The state of North Dakota had banned marriage for alcoholics, the insane, and those suffering from tuberculosis as early as the turn of the century. In 1907, the state of Indiana had passed the world's first law allowing sterilization of the mentally ill and criminally insane. By 1930, 28 American states have passed similar laws, and 15,000 people in mental hospitals and prisons have been compulsory sterilized. By 1939, the figure will have reached 30,000. The health office of the government of the German Weimar Republic makes a detailed study of American eugenic laws. It is deeply impressed by America's sterilization campaign, and leading German eugenicists praise U.S. restrictions on the immigration of foreigners, and the laws passed in some southern states banning intermarriage between the races. There is a growing concern in German medical circles that Germany is being left behind in the struggle for racial improvement. By 1927, eugenics, now with the new name racial hygiene, is rapidly gaining respectability in Germany. More and more university medical faculties offer courses in the subject. An institute specializing in racial hygiene is founded by the German Health Office. The task of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute is to study means of halting what an influential report had called the physical and mental degeneration of the German people. Racial hygiene has also become a central pillar in the strange ideology of a rising political party.
The state, he writes, must set race at the center of all life. It must see to it that there is only one disgrace, to bring children into the world despite one's own sickness and deficiencies. Here, the state must act as guardian of a millennial future, in the face of which the wishes and selfishness of the individual appear as nothing. To Hitler, the millennial future which the state must defend is the coming triumph of Aryan man. societies dedicated to the occult. aristocratic and educated classes. So widespread is the influence of mystical doctrines that even one of Germany's most powerful generals believes that national salvation lies in reviving the worship of the Norse god Wotan. General Erich Lutendorf, hero of the Great War and former chief of the German general staff, freely admits that he believes he is in psychic communion with the Nordic race soul. In 1923, Lutendorf had led an abortive coup in Bavaria. His ally was the little-known political agitator, Adolf Hitler. Many of the members of Lutendorf's circle, including his future wife, are closely associated with an influential occultist group calling itself the Edda Society. The Edda Society is founded in December 1925 by Rudolf John Gorsleben. Some years earlier, Gorsleben had been active in extreme nationalist politics. He had been a speaker at meetings of the occultist Thule Society and had founded a political movement with the anti-Semite Julius Stryker. Stryker would later become a key figure in the infant Nazi party. Gorsleben then abandons politics. He immerses himself in the task of deciphering the ancient Nordic script of the runes and penetrating the secrets of the Icelandic verses known as the Edda. In these, Gorsleben believes can be rediscovered the priceless magical heritage of the vanished Aryan godmen. In widely read periodicals, Gorsleben and the Edda occultists teach that traces of the blood of the Aryans are present in the German people. Warning against racial dilution, Gorsleben writes, Remember, God dwells within you. It is a creed which will become the lifelong conviction of Heinrich Himmler, Reichsführer of the SS. As a youth, Himmler had avidly consumed the writings of the German occultists. He'd grown obsessed with astrology, spiritualism, and herbalism. Above all, he'd adopted as his own the mystical doctrine of the Aryan. If, as Himmler had come to believe, the blood of the Aryans runs most strongly in the veins of Germanic peoples, then, by breeding from the purest individuals, a race of superhumans could be produced a race in which the Aryan psychic powers would grow ever stronger. Himmler, trained as an agriculturalist 
and devoted to the occult, is embarking on the strangest eugenics experiment in history. By 1934, a year after the Nazi seizure of power in Germany, Himmler has firmly established the entry requirements for membership of his SS. The SS Race and Resettlement Bureau investigates the racial ancestry of every applicant. Candidates for membership of Himmler's elite must also submit to a rigorous physical examination. Only those of strongly Nordic appearance, who are free from bodily defects and of good proportion and stature, are accepted. Then begins a year-long process of transformation. Central to the SS man's training is immersion in the cult of the Aryan and the ideology of National Socialism. He must also master the extraordinary set of doctrines enshrined in the SS Catechism. It is a catechism in which God is the race. Why do we believe in Germany and the Fuhrer? Because we believe in God. We believe in Germany, which he created and in the Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, whom he has sent us. Why do you obey? From inner conviction, from belief in Germany, in the Fuhrer, in the movement, in the SS, and from loyalty. On November the 9th, the anniversary of the coup of 1923, the day symbolized by the rune of remembrance the SS candidate swears the kith and kin oath. In it, he binds himself and his future family to obey the SS marriage law. None will marry unless the union is approved by the SS Race and Resettlement Bureau. Henceforth, the SS man's family are entitled to wear the coveted badge of SS clan membership, a sunflower bearing the rune of fertility. The strict racial qualifications for SS marriages are widely praised by the scientists and medical men of Germany's racial hygiene movement. Inspired by the example of the SS, measures are already underway to control the breeding of Germany's civilian population. Within months of Hitler's becoming Chancellor of Germany, the first of a series of eugenic laws is passed. The law for the prevention of genetically diseased offspring establishes a vast network of genetic health courts. These have the power to order that individuals suffering from any of a range of mental or physical ailments be sterilized. The campaign is organized on a massive scale. 1,700 genetic health courts will, in 1934 alone, order over 56,000 sterilizations. Within 10 years, Almost 400,000 Germans will have been sterilized. In support of the German sterilization campaign, the Reich Health Office and German medical journals publish graphic illustrations of the cost to the public of maintaining the mentally and physically handicapped. One poster insists, we do not stand alone. While a German mother holds her baby, a man holds a shield inscribed with the 1933 sterilization law. Around them are arrayed the flags of nations that have already legalized compulsory sterilization. The second major eugenics law is designed to control the breeding of the population at large. The law for the protection of the genetic health of the German people requires that all those who wish to marry submit to a medical examination. Marriage is totally forbidden to those suffering from diseases believed to be hereditary. The third eugenic measure is passed in the autumn of 1935. Physicians of the racial hygiene movement had long argued that intermarriage between the races is genetically harmful producing degenerate offspring. The law for the protection of German blood and German honor forbids marriage between Jews and non-Jews, 
Following this new measure, racial hygienists devise complex formulae for calculating the proportions of Jewish blood which each partner can possess if marriage is to be allowed. The massive task of racially investigating all those wishing to marry is entrusted to the SS Race and Resettlement Bureau. Heinrich Himmler's vision of the SS has, from the beginning, extended far beyond his eugenic project to breed a race of pure-blooded Aryans. His intention is to create a military religious order, an order steeped in Aryan mysticism. Himmler has pronounced, we assemble and march according to unalterable laws as a national socialist order of Nordic men, and as a sworn community on our way to a far future. In devising rituals and practices for his Nordic order, Himmler has looked for inspiration to the Teutonic tribes of Germany's distant past. On Himmler's instructions, SS archaeologists from the Race and Resettlement Bureau are intensely researching the history of races they believe to be of Aryan descent. To advise him in his search for the religion of the ancient Teutonic tribes, Himmler has recruited into the SS a renowned Germanic occultist, a man whose claim is to be the last in a long line of Aryan priest kings. Karl Maria Willigott was born in Vienna in 1866. During the Great War, he'd risen to the rank of colonel in the Austrian army. Willigott claims to possess ancestral clairvoyant memory the power to recall the history and experiences of the Germans over thousands of years. He believes that in himself is an unusually pure strain of the normally latent psychic powers of the Aryans. Villigat's clairvoyant visions have told him that German blood, culture and history are far more ancient than historians and scientists can know. According to Willigat, the history of the Aryans had begun in 228,000 BC, an era in which there were three suns in the sky and the world was populated by giants and other fantastic creatures. Willigat's own royal line, he claims to have originated in the union between the gods of air and water in the very earliest days of the Earth. Villigot claims that amongst his ancestors are many of the greatest of Germanic heroes. All of Villigot's line through the ages has remained faithful to the occult traditions of the Aryan Germans. Impressed by Villigot's clairvoyant powers, Himmler accepts Villigot into his SS and appoints him head of the Race and Resettlement Bureau's Department of Prehistory. In a remarkably short time, Villigot will rise to the rank of SS Brigadier on Himmler's personal staff. By 1934, Himmler's SS is becoming one of the most powerful organizations in the Reich. Germany's state police forces are, one by one, falling under Himmler's control. The SS is responsible for all intelligence and security duties in the Nazi party. The SS Race and Resettlement Bureau is dramatically expanding as it polices the national eugenics program. The SS is rapidly becoming a state within the Nazi state. Now Heinrich Himmler, with the help of Karl Willigut, plans the strangest of all his creations. An SS spiritual center, an order castle for his Germanic brotherhood. The castle of Babelsberg 
had been built in the early 1600s on the site of a 10th century Saxon fort. Set in the romantic surroundings of Paderborn in Westphalia, Babelsberg had made a deep impression on Heinrich Himmler. We have been looking for a castle for our SS for a long time, Himmler confides. I have found a suitable ruined castle dating back to Germanic prehistory. In late 1934, the SS purchases the sacred site and begins the massive task of reconstruction. Karl Willigert had accompanied Himmler on his earliest visits to the castle. His researches had revealed an ancient prophecy. Here, in writing, reports Villigat, is the prophecy concerning the great determining battle of which we spoke. Villigat has unearthed the Westphalian legend in which Babelsberg is destined to become a magical German stronghold in a future conflict between Europe and Asia. The prophecy coincides exactly with Himmler's belief that the SS is to be the bastion of Europe against a massive onslaught from Asia. Already, Himmler's order is preparing for the millennial conflict to come. The SS is to become the most formidable military force in Europe. On December the 14th, 1934, Himmler orders the formation of an SS military detachment, the SSVT. Almost from the outset, the military training of the SSVT is revolutionary. The emphasis is less on the barrack square drill favored by the regular army than on the creation of a new breed of military athlete. In the words of an SSVT commander, training is designed to produce a supple and adaptable type of soldier, athletic in bearing, capable of more than ordinary endurance. Unlike the regular army, the SSVT is organized into highly mobile battle groups. It is also the first German military formation to adopt camouflage uniform and to the astonishment of army commanders to maneuver with live ammunition. To the SS, casualties in training are simply to be expected. While the SSVT is to become an elite force in the service of the Fuhrer and the Aryan mission, another arm of the SS is already at war. of rank, 
proven SS men are presented with a silver death's head signet ring. The ring is based on a design created for Himmler by Karl Willigar. Its symbols are of deep mystical significance. The Sig rule, emblem of victory. The Hagal rule, the rune of hail, destruction and enclosing. Included is the personal rune group of the Villigat ancestral tradition. And the swastika, symbol of the destiny of Aryan man. In 1937, Himmler decrees that the rings of all dead SS men are to be returned to him for safekeeping in a locked chest deep in the castle of Babelsberg. The return of the ring is a symbol of the dead man's eternal community with the SS Order. The transformation of Himmler's SS castle is by now gaining momentum. Under the architect Hermann Bartels, the west and south wings have been fully renovated. The moat and gardens have been restored and a bridge built Something like that. Don't look for the Secret Service to give you justice. They're not the Justice Department. They're not a police force, folks. They're assigned to the president for one purpose, to protect the president, folks. You're not going to see them in Chicago hanging the president. That's not their job. Their job is to protect the president, and they will. If the president commits murder in front of them, they will protect the president. You know what? I think Radio Freemasonry is turning in to the Red Skelton Show. What do you think? <laughs> It makes me wonder what's going on next week, because usually there's something like this three or four days before a big item like NAFTA or yeah, something. One, once again, once again, old Tommy Baby's got you guys out there chasing your tails. When are you going to wise up, folks? Or maybe we ought to do that, Carolyn. I mean, that's a hell of a comedy routine. I mean, I was laughing for a whole solid hour. I couldn't stop laughing. You really were. You really were. <laughs> I never saw you cut up like that. <laughs> well, I never thought I'd hear anything like that in my whole life, much less hear those callers calling in who were swallowing it hook, line, and sinker. Did you hear the last guy? Yeah. He was I trying to connect a plane crash in Arkansas with everything that Skolnick was saying. Skolnick said, oh, I don't, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> Oh, don't go away, sheeple. I just love it. <laughs> By 1938, the East Wing, too, has been completely renovated. True to the deeply secretive nature of the SS, Himmler has banned all but the most trustworthy from visiting Babelsberg. Bartels has virtually excluded local companies and labor from the project. Instead, contingents of the Pioneer Corps have been drafted to the region from all over Germany. In the renovation of the castle interior, Himmler spares no expense. Paneling and furnishings, doors and balustrades are all of solid oak. An elaborately carved spiral staircase is built in workshops on the site. Everywhere there is the finest of decorative wrought ironwork. The chambers of SS leaders, each room named after a Germanic hero, are to be filled with appropriate relics. Arms and armor are collected from all over Germany. Himmler has pronounced, may the spirit of the most distant past be the future in this castle. By the late 1930s, the National Socialist aim of increasing the population of racially desirable Germans has been given the highest national priority. The means 
is to remove German women from paid employment and return them to the home. Their task will be to produce the greatest possible number of children. Soon after the foundation of the Nazi state, government loans worth a year's salary are awarded to men whose wives leave their jobs. The amount which must be repaid is reduced for every child the family produces. By 1940, 1,700,000 loans will have been granted. In 1938, a decree is issued requiring that all public officials marry or resign. All couples married for five years who are still childless incur a tax penalty. Grounds for divorce are broadened to include the inability of a wife to bear children. Abortion is illegal for those classed as Aryans, but encouraged for non-Aryans. At the instigation of Heinrich Himmler, laws are passed removing all legal obstacles to Aryan women bearing children outside marriage. Himmler has decreed, sacred to us is every mother of good blood. Of the greatest value of all are the offspring of his SS elite. In December 1935, Himmler had founded the project which would remain his obsession for almost 10 years. He calls it the Lebensborn, the spring of life. It is a chain of maternity homes and breeding centers for his SS racial elite. In Himmler's words, a nursery garden for pure Germanic blood. In Germany, there will be 10 such homes, each veiled in secrecy and under heavy SS guard. I fostered rumors, Himmler admits, to the effect that every single woman desiring a child could turn to Lebensborn in the strictest confidence. We only recommend genuinely valuable men as procreation helpers. In spite of the stringent racial qualifications required, there is no shortage of prospective mothers. The Nazi League of German Maidens has officially stated, although not every German girl can hope to find a husband, you can all become mothers. An SS Race and Resettlement Resolution of 1937 notes, the Lebensborn will bring them together with a man not casually, but in full awareness that they are fulfilling a noble duty towards the nation. At a naming ceremony, the children of the Lebensborn project are immediately immersed in the Germanic ritual of the SS clan. Males are touched on the forehead with an SS dagger, symbolizing their first initiation into Himmler's mystical order. Mothers of SS children are told, remember, that you are but a link in the clan's endless chain. For years, Himmler has pondered the question of how his SS order is to be governed. Taking his inspiration from the Knights of the Round Table, Himmler has appointed a shadowy inner council of 12 chosen SS leaders. The ritual setting for their deliberations is the castle of Wabelsberg. In the massive north tower of the castle is an inner sanctum, a vast circular hall, its walls 12 feet thick. Around the chamber stand 12 columns. On the floor is a mosaic of swastikas, forming a sunwheel of 12 radiating spokes. In this strange chamber, Himmler and his chosen 12 commune with the Aryan race soul and the spirits of the Germanic ancestors. 
Deep below the inner sanctum cut into the solid bedrock is the crypt, Valhalla. Here are performed ceremonies of the dead. In the center, the wooden coats of arms of a dead SS knight are to be ceremonially burned. Twelve stone plinths around the walls will hold twelve urns, each of which will one day hold the armorial ashes of a departed knight. In the crypt burns an eternal flame, symbol of the continuity of the order and its eternal mission in the service of the race. In 1937, Heinrich Himmler, speaking to senior German army officers, proclaims, the next 10 years will see a war of annihilation conducted by the subhuman enemies of the entire world against Germany, the colonel of the Teutonic race and guardian of the culture of the human race. It will mean, warns Himmler, the existence or non-existence of that white race of which we are the leading nation. In reality, the war of racial annihilation foreseen by Himmler will be the war about to be waged by Germany. For Adolf Hitler, the first step in the creation of a greater Germanic empire has been to order in March 1936 the reoccupation of the demilitarized Rhineland. It is a blatant contravention of the Treaty of Versailles. In the wake of the occupation, the SS becomes deeply involved in the first sterilization campaign to be waged on grounds of race. In a joint operation mounted by the Gestapo and genetic health courts, 500 children of mixed race, the offspring of black French soldiers, are seized and sterilized. It is a grim warning of horrors to come. By now, the racial doctrines of National Socialism have found ardent support far beyond the frontiers of the German Reich. In the United States of America, the German-American Bund, led by Fritz Kuhn, is secretly supported by the German Foreign Office. In Belgium, the ultra-nationalist Rexist Party is founded by Leon de Grel. In Britain, Oswald Mosley and the British fascists ardently support Hitler's new Germany. In Austria, Seiss Inquart, leader of the Austrian National Socialists, is appointed Minister of the Interior in response to German pressure. It is he who, after violence orchestrated by the Austrian SS, invites German forces to enter Austria and restore order. Austria is to become a province of Germany. In the wake of the occupation, SS troops of the Gestapo and SD Security Service arrest 76,000 Austrians and commit them to concentration camps. Next on Hitler's agenda is Czechoslovakia. The leader of the National Socialists in the German-populated region of Czechoslovakia is Konrad Henlein. In the months following the German occupation of Austria, Henlein provokes a crisis in the Sudeten. His followers, armed by Germany and supported by detachments of the SS, begin an uprising that will culminate in Hitler's occupation of Czechoslovakia. As the German army consolidates its hold on Czechoslovakia, Himmler dispatches an SS brigadier to Prague. His mission is to organize the deportation of six million Czechs and the resettlement of Czech agricultural lands by racial Germans. In Himmler's plan, the settlers would be selected on grounds of racial purity by his own race and resettlement bureau. 
Even though Hitler has already spoken favorably of the mass deportation of Czechs, Himmler's plan comes to nothing. The German armaments industry covets Czech factories and labor and will tolerate no disruption. In Poland, Himmler's Aryan vision will encounter no such obstacle. In Mein Kampf, Hitler had written, we begin where we left off 600 years ago. We put an end to the perpetual Germanic march to the south and west of Europe and turn our eyes towards the lands of the east. In the summer of 1939, Hitler summons Heinrich Himmler to his Bavarian mountain retreat. In the coming invasion of Poland, the SS is to play a key role. It is to ruthlessly eliminate from the Polish population all those who might carry the seeds of a future class of leaders. Under Himmler's head of security, Reinhard Heydrich, five SS Einsatzgruppen extermination squads are to follow close behind the invading German armies. In Poland, Himmler will embark on the first stage of his long-cherished dream. The SS is to be the vanguard of a great Germanic migration. In the invasion of Poland on September the 1st, 1939, the SSBT and Death's Head formations are for the first time thrown into battle. In spite of a lack of experienced leaders, Himmler's hand-picked fighters prove fanatical in the attack, undeterred by heavy casualties. Unlike their army comrades, the SS have been instilled with the knowledge that they are in the service of a great mission. The conquest and enslavement of an inferior race and the foundation of an Aryan Empire. While the SS military formations bask in the success of their Polish campaign, Reinhard Heydrich's Einsatzgruppen unleash a reign of terror. Tens of thousands of Poles are seized and shot. The victims are teachers, doctors, officials, aristocrats, Catholic priests, and Jews. Hitler had ordered, whatever we find in the shape of an upper class in Poland is to be liquidated. To the horror of regular army commanders, the SS is reveling in its murderous task. By September the 27th, less than a month after the invasion, Heydrich estimates of the Polish upper classes in the occupied territories, only 3% is still present. For his services in the cause of racial conquest, Heinrich Himmler is rewarded by a grateful Führer. On September the 29th, Hitler informs him that he is to be appointed Reichskommissioner for the strengthening of Germanism. The resettlement of occupied territories is to be Himmler's exclusive province. The East is to belong to the SS. Europe has been plunged is eagerly embraced by a rapidly expanding armed SS. By June 1940, Heinrich Himmler's army, now renamed the Waffen SS, 
is a formidable motorized force of a hundred thousand men. In the Low Countries and France, the new divisions hunger for glory. While the exploits of his military athletes win the grudging respect of the regular army, and in Hitler's words, pay the butcher's bill, Himmler's thoughts are elsewhere. To him, the war in Western Europe is merely a distraction. Only in the East can the destiny of the SS be truly fulfilled. Since early 1939, an SS plan had been in preparation for the repatriation of up to 30 million racial Germans resident in foreign countries. An agreement had been struck with the Soviet Union and the Baltic States for the transfer of their German populations to the Reich. Their actual destination will be Poland. The SS Race and Resettlement Bureau carefully investigates the ancestry of the first wave of migrants, in all, almost half a million people. They are presented with Reich citizenship and dispatched to SS transit camps. Their fate, according to Himmler's blueprint for the East, is to become a new Germanic peasantry. Their guardians and rulers are to be the aristocracy of the SS. By mid-1941, one million Poles and Polish Jews have been driven from their homes and deported to the area of Poland known as the Government General. The Jewish people of the conquered territories have been forced into ghettos to await a fate as yet unknown. thousand repatriated Germans have been settled on the seized lands. Yet, resettlement is only the first phase in Himmler's grand design. The second is the repossession of whatever Aryan blood can be found in the Polish population. On Himmler's orders, Poles are to be subject to a massive program of racial screening. Tens of thousands of Polish children are examined by the SS Race and Resettlement Bureau. The shape of the face, eye and hair color, even x-rays of the skull are used by SS physicians to detect traces of Nordic blood. Of those rejected as racially undesirable, many are sterilized. Those deemed of racial value are forcibly taken west. After a period of what the SS term re-Germanization in a Lebensborn home, they are to be adopted by SS families. For Himmler, the seizure of children of Aryan stock is a long-term project. Of more pressing importance is the rapid expansion of the Waffen-SS. of nationality are meaningless. All that matters is race. His aim is the creation of a pan-European brotherhood of the racially pure, an international SS, ready for the coming crusade against the Slavs and Bolshevism. The national socialist movements of the Nordic countries will prove fertile grounds for recruitment. Danish, Dutch and Flemish is the first of 13 SS divisions to be raised from Nordic or Germanic foreigners. All are formations entirely composed of volunteers. To the members of Himmler's foreign legions, 
in the racial vision of the SS lies the future of Europe. With the seeds of a pan-European SS army sown in the conquered West, and the battles for the East which Himmler foresees drawing ever closer, the castle of Wevelsberg takes on an even more powerful significance. Wevelsberg, spiritual center of the SS order, is to become a city. The North Tower, with its sacred hall and underground vault, is to be the center point of vast circular grounds. Surrounding them is to be built an enormous complex of administrative centers, libraries, and research institutes for astrology, astronomy, and Teutonic history. Ringing the city will be walls over 40 feet high. Even the ground plan of this, the SS Vatican, is of mystical significance. It represents the head of a spear, its tip pointing to the north. The cost of realizing Himmler's vision is to be 300 million marks, an extraordinary sum. The entire project is to be completed sometime in the 1960s. By then, the SS will possess its own independent state, a state carved from the heartland of the Soviet Union. To Heinrich Himmler, Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union, promises the fulfillment of all his dreams. With victory will come the foundation of an SS kingdom. With Heinrich Himmler, Grand Master of the SS Order in supreme authority, with SS nobles ruling as the feudal overlords of Germanic settlers, the Order will return to its millennial mission. From the SS peasant warrior, conqueror of the Slavs, will be bred over many generations the next phase in human evolution. And, of course, you all know the rest of the story. That was the last episode in our series on Mr. Bab Mystery Babylon. There are 41 tapes, folks. That includes number 33, which is the Luxor video. Send us a self-addressed stamped envelope with $1. We'll send you a list of all available materials. Also, don't forget, tomorrow is the last day that you can have your order postmarked for the family food storage unit. One-year food supply for four people or two-year food supply for two adults. Remember, this is all adults, four adults and two adults. 37 cases. Shipping weight is 1,078 pounds. The retail price, $2,768. For listeners, $2,268. discount. For CAGI members, a $768 discount. CAGI members get it for $2,000. If it's not postmarked by tomorrow, no matter when we receive it, it will be sent back to you. This offer expires tomorrow, folks. Shipping, uh costs are payable COD when uh, the food is delivered on everything that we're going to be offered uh, on this food storage plant. Uh, uh, hey, did you guys hear the story about the, the three uh, Israelis? Uh, <laughs> good night, folks. Uh, they were in uniform. And God bless you all. Mm -hmm.